Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Lifting the Fog, a podcast that hopes to become a collection of conversations offering support and connecting individuals affected by childhood cancer. So in this week's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Lewis Cantley. Dr. Cantley has helped to make some significant advances in cancer research that have resulted in some really revolutionary treatments for cancer, diabetes, and autoimmune disease. Um, He's been a professor of biology at three different universities, including Harvard and now Cornell, Um, but his credentials are long and impressive. Um, So I first heard about Dr. Cantley uh, from an interview that he did with Katie Couric with Stand Up to Cancer um, regarding sugar and its relationship to to cancer. And as our listeners know, I'm super curious when it comes to this topic um, and diet and nutrition alone. Um, So I was really eager to have him on and shocked he said yes. (laughs) Um, But Dr. Cantley made me think about sugar in a totally different way and and maybe not in the way that you may be assuming or thinking. So um, I know that a few weeks ago we had another expert on the podcast um, with Steph to talk about the relationship between sugar and cancer, which was a really great conversation that I enjoyed as well. Um, And while I think that these two would agree upon quite a bit, um, I do think that Dr. Cantley brought a lot to the conversation that made me really question even more, you know, my own personal relationship with sugar. Um, So I can't wait for you guys to listen. He is just a wealth of knowledge and I appreciated him humoring uh, my sort of eighth grade biology knowledge (laughs) um, and answering my questions. Um, And lastly, before we get into this week's episode and as we continue the conversation on educating not only ourselves, but our children on ways to learn and talk about things like race and inequalities, we wanted to share yet another really great children's book. Um, So I shared one of her books last week, but she's one of my favorite authors, so I'm going to share another one this week, Um, Jacqueline Woodson who, by the way, was the um, 2018-19 National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. But um, the book that I'm sharing this week is called um, The Other Side. And it's a book about two young girls living in a segregated America who find ways, despite literal and figurative barriers, so in this instance, a fence that separates the two girls um, living in in a uh, black community and a white community, um, but to connect and become friends, you know, in spite of it. So it's a really great book. I've enjoyed reading it um, in the classroom and also with my my kiddos. Um, and again, this is written by um, an African-American female author, Jacqueline Woodson, um, who I just love. But you can find more books like The Other Side and Each Kindness. Um, and for a wide range of ages. So again, this book, The Other Side, is a picture picture book. Um, But you can find more books um, like this that talk about things like race and inequality on socialjusticebooks.org. All right, guys. And lastly, uh, sorry, this is a long intro. (laughs) Um, We hope that you continue to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at LiftingTheFog1. Email us with questions, comments, and thoughts and ideas for future conversations at LiftingTheFog1 at Gmail. Um, And make sure that you subscribe and share. Share the podcast because that's how we get the word out. So, all right, guys, um, without further ado, Dr. Lewis Cantley. All right. 
Welcome to another episode of Lifting the Fog. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Lewis C. Cantley, who is a cell biologist, biochemist, and professor of cancer biology and medicine at Cornell University, who has made significant advances to the understanding of cancer metabolism and is also the director of the Cancer Center at Cornell Medical College. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Cantley. No, glad to, glad to join you. It uh, should be a good, fun conversation. So um, I've tried to just scratch the surface. There's um, your your background is so impressive to say the <laughs> say the least. You've been um, researching this as long as or longer than I've even been alive. So I'm just curious if we can start the conversation with better understanding your um, background um, in this in this work and specifically related to your interests between cancer and sugar. So so how long have you been doing this work and what kind of sparked the interest? So, uh, you know, I was trained as a physical chemist, biochemist, and uh, as a postdoc, I became interested in uh, metabolism, uh, how cells control, how nutrients get into the cell uh, and metabolize them. Uh, And in the process of doing that work, I stumbled onto the discovery of this enzyme called PI3 kinase. Uh, that the enzyme was discovered in my laboratory. Uh, and it, um, the reason we discovered it is because it co-purified with a variety of proteins, uh, growth factor receptors, uh, and the insulin receptor uh, that uh, control, as you know, insulin controls metabolism in many tissues. Uh, but it's also a growth factor. Uh, insulin uh, children who lack the ability to produce insulin, type 1 diabetics, fail to thrive. You need insulin in order for your tissues to grow as a child, and you need it again as an adult to control glucose levels in the blood. Um, So we think of insulin as mainly in adults controlling glucose in the blood, but it's also a growth factor. Uh, like its closely related uh, receptor, uh, insulin-like growth factor, uh, which has a similar receptor to the insulin receptor. So I was trying to understand how insulin drives glucose into cells, amino acids into cells, uh, drives protein synthesis, etc., and discovered that there is this enzymatic activity co-purifying with the insulin receptor that phosphorylated a lipid. And the lipid is called phosphatidylinositol. And it phosphorylated at a position that had never been seen before, the three position of the inositol ring. And therefore, it's called PI or phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase. So it puts a phosphate on that lipid. And um, what was important about that is it we also found that it associated with a variety of oncoproteins, proteins that cause cancer, cancer gene products, the VSARC, uh, tyrosine kinase, uh, PDGF receptor, EGF receptor, various growth factor receptors, which like insulin drive cell growth and which have been shown to, when mutated, to drive cancers. So this said that both cancer genes Uh, and the proteins that they encode, and insulin receptor, both turn on the same pathway. And we went on to show that that pathway is what drives tumor growth. 
And we now know that PI3K, PI3 kinase, the enzyme my lab discovered, is the most frequently mutated gene in all of breast cancer. Also the most frequently mutated gene in endometrial cancer. Uh, it's also highly mutated in glioblastoma. So a variety of cancers, in fact, most cancers have that enzyme turned on one way or another, and it drives the growth of cancers. But it's also, keep in mind, the enzyme that mediates what insulin does. And that made me suspect that there may be some link between insulin and cancer. So people who study insulin are endocrinologists. Mm -hmm. they, you know, they consult for cancer doctors because many patients with cancer also have problems with mm -hmm. endocrine problems where they have problems with uh, glucose levels. But they don't really study cancer mechanisms. Uh, in contrast, uh, cancer doctors are, you know, they're through the cancer. And if they have a problem with glucose, they call in the endocrinologist. So mm -hmm. those two fields are really pretty separate. Uh, my brother's an endocrinologist, so I know a lot from him. Mm -hmm. uh, my other brother's uh, a nephrologist, uh, and my work is mainly cancer. Mm -hmm. So when we get together on holidays, we talk about a lot of diseases. <laughs> <laughs> And we learn from each other. So, so most people aren't thinking of this link between insulin and cancer. But for me, I've been obsessed with it for 25 or 30 years or so. Yeah. Did you sort of stumble upon it? Or was that kind of your goal in mind when you started this research? No, I, well, I, my goal, my initial goal was to try to understand how insulin works. Sure. Because when I started as a postdoc, insulin was a complete black box. We had no, we knew it was a wonderful hormone that would keep your glucose in control, but we had no idea what its receptor was. The receptor had not been purified. We had no idea how it did what it did. And uh, this discovery that my lab made really provided a biochemical explanation for how insulin does what it does. Um, but the shocking thing was that the mechanism of insulin was very similar to the mechanism of oncogenes that drove cancer. So that, uh, to me, then it raised the possibility that people who have cancer should pay attention to their insulin levels. Uh, in fact, everyone should pay attention to their insulin levels in that uh, if you have persistently high insulin, it can drive a disease called insulin resistance where the pancreas has to make lots more insulin in order to keep glucose under control. And that often progresses to type 2 diabetes, uh, where you now have to start giving insulin injections or use other drugs that help keep glucose under control. And probably 50% of Americans have either insulin resistance or borderline type 2 diabetes. And many people who have insulin resistance don't even know they have it. But the consequence of having insulin resistance is the, you know, around the clock, their insulin levels are high all the time. And if, if you're like me and you're concerned that high insulin will drive growth of tumors, then you, you realize that there's a risk of having that high insulin all the time. And if we look at various diseases like endometrial cancer, for example, 
the, the consequence of being insulin resistant dramatically increases your risk of getting or dying from endometrial cancer. And so that has been part of what I've been trying to, the message that I've been trying to get across is let's avoid insulin resistance and if at all possible, avoid doing insulin injections to control insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes and therefore uh, keep your insulin low to lower your risk of cancer. So um, the obviously the easiest way to avoid insulin resistance is to change your diet. Mm -hmm. So if you eat less rapid release carbohydrate, particularly sugary drinks, the probability of getting becoming insulin resistant dramatically drops. And the extreme diet one can go on, and I'm not advocating this, but it is a diet that's quite effective, is the ketogenic diet. Uh, it has only 8% carbohydrate in it. And, and even that 8% is something like you know asparagus or broccoli, not rice or potatoes, mm -hmm. uh, or pasta. And so with that diet, which is mostly fat and some protein, uh, insulin levels remain low all the time. Uh, and people with insulin resistance can pretty much get cured by going on that type of diet. For myself, I've not been on a ketogenic diet. I, I avoid drinking anything with sugar in it. Uh, I don't, in fact, I don't eat anything that has sugar added to it. I don't have desserts with sugar. I do eat fruit, which has sugar in it, but it's very slow released sugar. So there's a big difference between having sugar in liquids, like sugary sodas, or even orange juice or, or apple juice, and eating the same amount of sugar that's locked into a fruit, like an apple. So the punchline of every talk that I give is, eat an apple, don't put it in a blender and convert it to apple juice. There's a huge difference in, you're getting exactly the same calories, exactly the same food, but in one case, you're causing a rush of sugar into the bloodstream that stimulates the pancreas to release insulin. Um, that's if you drink uh, orange juice, for example, or apple juice. If you eat an apple, uh, the rate at which the sugar gets into the bloodstream is quite slow. And if you're walking or doing any amount of exercise, your sugar level may not go up at all while eating an apple. And therefore, there's no insulin release. So most people are thinking about the sugar level. I'm thinking about the insulin level. Sure. I want to keep it down. I wonder, and you you kind of touched on this, but something that I wanted to ask you, and I just a few episodes ago had a um, PhD student who's studying um, the connection between sugar and cancer, but specifically, I think her focus is ovarian cancer. And I asked her, um, what she thought about the difference between good and bad sugar. Um, so, you know, my my brain thinks of, you know, good sugars, like you were saying, fruits versus, you know, refined white sugar um, and the difference in high fructose um, sh sugars or corn syrup. Um, so, you know, I'd asked her that question and she kind of said sugar is sugar and it breaks down in your body the same way. What What are your thoughts on that? Are there good sugars versus, versus bad sugar. But I agree with what she said, that sugar is sugar is sugar. 
mean, there is some difference between table sugar and uh, high fructose corn syrup. Table sugar is a covalent dimer of glucose and fructose, one to one, held together covalently. Um, but although as soon as you start eating it, your even saliva begins to break it down into glucose and fructose. Mm-hmm. Uh, high fructose corn syrup is just a mixture of roughly 60% fructose and 40% glucose. While of course, in the case of sucrose, it's 50-50. So the ratio of fructose to glucose is higher and therefore high fructose corn syrup tastes sweeter. Fructose is the element of sugar that tastes sweet. Glucose is not very sweet. So, um, so they taste slightly different. Um, they have the same number of calories per gram. Uh, and the biggest difference though, is that since high fructose corn syrup doesn't crystallize, it's always given as a liquid, almost always, but maybe added to baking you know, foods that are baked. Mm-hmm. Almost every processed food you buy, if it's sweet, it has high fructose corn syrup added because it's cheaper than sucrose. Um, but I think the critical thing is since it's always readily broken down, it's going to enter your bloodstream faster, particularly if it's in a, in a drink, than will eating a, uh, an apple, which has sugar in it. And it's just released very slowly because it's trapped in the fibers and it has, it takes longer for your digestive system to release the sugar. And so it's the kinetics of getting into the bloodstream that makes the difference as to whether your insulin goes up. With regard to the total number of calories you've consumed, it's exactly the same. So she's set right in all those things, except the kinetics. Kinetics are important. I mean, as I said, I was trained as a physical chemist, so I always think about mm-hmm. rates which things happen. And, you know, time is that independent variable that we can't change. Yeah. <laughs> you just keep moving forward. And so the faster that sugar gets in your bloodstream, the faster, the more likely your insulin is going to go up. And that can cause problems. It will lead to insulin resistance. Uh, It will cause obesity because that rush of sugar uh, will end up being stored as fat in your liver. And um, as opposed to being consumed in your muscle and brain. And so that's, it's all about kinetics. Yeah. So would you say, though, that the, the research and the work that you have done has shown that cancer feeds, or excuse me, rather sugar feeds cancer cells? So I wouldn't put it that way. I would say insulin drives growth of cancer cells and sugar causes insulin levels to go up. So, the, so if you look at the sugar level in your bloodstream, it's, you know, it, it, it may go up 30% when you drink a sugary drink. Um, but that's, that means that instead of, you know, instead of the cancer cell seeing a hundred millimolar glucose, it's seeing 130 millimolar. So it's, it's just 30% change in availability of sugar perhaps. But the difference in insulin may go up 10 or 20 fold. Mm. And so it's at 10 or 20 fold increase in insulin will drive the tumor to take up glucose. It's the insulin driving glucose uptake rather than the, just the ambient level of glucose around the tumor. That's what's important because unless 
the tumor gets a signal saying, open up the gates and let the sugar in, mm -hmm. the sugar is not going to get into the cancer. And insulin, that's what insulin does. It tells the tumor to let glucose in. And so that that's what I worry about. It's always the insulin, not the actual level of sugar in your bloodstream. That makes sense why, you know, everything, it feels like everything I've read on, you know, any correlation between cancer and sugar, um, it's always talking about sugary drinks. Um, you know, I've read, um, recently I read an article about men that drink, gosh, I can't recall the exact number, you know, X amount of sugary drinks have like a three time higher rate of prostate cancer or, or, or breast cancer for women. But that makes sense. And um, I guess I didn't think of it. I just, I guess I just think of sugar intake as sugar intake and not um, taking into account, like you're talking about that insulin spike and the differences in between like how your body is breaking down sugar or how fast it's, I guess, absorbing into your body. Um, I'm, I'm talking to you like I'm an eighth grade biology student, I know, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you're, I mean, you're asking the right questions because you're asking the same questions that the average American would ask. And uh, I, sometimes I get a little too technical about it, but it really breaks down to this simple question of, of what your insulin levels are. Yeah. That's, that's what really correlates with a lot of cancers. We see correlations between obesity and cancer. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, if you break down, for example, women, there's a, there was a nice study done on breast cancer where women who were overweight but not insulin resistant, I mean, they're, they're not everyone who's overweight is insulin resistant, um, and but people who are thin that were insulin resistant, and particularly Asians, Asian people uh, tend to uh, become insulin resistant with just a small increase in sugar consumption. Um, and so, uh, if you look at what correlates with breast cancer, it's the insulin resistance, not the obesity. Uh, it's just that in, in Caucasians, obesity and insulin resistance are a very strong correlation. But in Asians, you can get insulin resistance without obesity, and that increases cancer rates as well. So we have to, particularly in a multiracial society, we have to pay attention mm -hmm. to what the fundamental mechanisms are, and uh, because they don't always correlate with uh, weight. What's the difference um, in how an adolescent or young child versus an adult breaks down sugars, or is it all the same? Uh, it's, it's pretty much the same, although uh, young children tend to be more active than adults, and therefore they can consume sugar at a higher rate. But they're still going to get those insulin peaks if they drink sugary drinks. So I, you know, if, if we suddenly eliminated every drink in the world that has sugar in it, you know, keeping in mind that you know, our, our metabolism evolved you know, a million years ago, we, as we became humans, our metabolism slightly diverged from other primates. But certainly the last 100,000 years, there hasn't been a big change in the way we metabolize foods. And uh, for most of that period of time, the sugary drink had not been invented. So our metabolism did not anticipate that there would suddenly become available a a water-soluble source of huge amounts of sugar. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, and even even as much as, you know, 50, 100 years ago, 
before high fructose corn syrup brought the price of sugary drinks down dramatically, it was expensive to buy a sugary drink. I was growing up in West Virginia in the 50s. One six-ounce Coca-Cola every week, that was our limit. That's all we got. That was a nice treat. Yeah, one six-ounce Coke Mm -hmm. every week. I remember going to this grocery store with my mother and got to buy the six-ounce Coke out of the cooler and drink it right there in the store. That was it. (laughs) (laughs) What? This was just, you know, this is a modern invention to have really cheap sugary drinks. Yeah. Everybody can consume. It does does feel like that certainly when it comes to nutrition, there are so many contradictory statements or information out there. why, why do you think that that is? And it, it also seems, I mean, you kind of talked about how earlier, um, how endocrinology and oncology kind of um, work separately sometimes. Why, aren't, why isn't um, more of a focus on diet integrated into medicine? And, and why do you feel like there are so many contradictory, um, I guess, theories out there when it comes to diet? It seems like it's so important what you put into your body. Well, part of the problem is that physicians are, you know, trained not to give advice unless there's a clinical trial that's proven that that advice is, is correct. Uh, and most of the, you know, most of the studies we do with regard to diet are observational rather than uh, rather than uh, controlled. So, in other words, we tell people what to eat, and then we see whether what happens. And they don't always do what we tell them to do because we don't generally lock them up into a, a room and so they can only eat what we give them to eat. Yeah. So those kinds of studies tend to be quite flawed. Now, there are some studies where people have voluntarily agreed to spend a month or two in, you know, in a locked-in environment where every single meal is provided to them. And those studies really tell us quite clearly that, for example, ketogenic diets cause everybody to lose weight and hemoglobin A1C, an indicator of your long-term glucose levels, uh, drops, uh, and that uh, you can improve, uh, re- even reverse insulin resistance. And and I know people who were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes who've been able to avoid having to take drugs for type 2 diabetes by changing their diet. Not everyone can do that, but some have. So, so certainly, if you, uh, for those few studies where there's been control, completely controlled environments, yes, we know that changing diet and taking eliminating sugary drinks will improve people's health, reverse insulin resistance, and, and better control type 2 diabetes. Uh, but uh, where the controversies come in at are where we particularly in cancer studies, mm-hmm. where people have advocated dietary intervention, but there has not been a controlled study to prove that it actually works. So my laboratory published a paper in a very high-profile journal in Nature, uh, now a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, uh, arguing based on mouse studies that uh, changing the diet, putting the mouse on a very low-carbohydrate diet, um, 
keeping the insulin down by a variety of approaches, not just diet. There are other ways to keep insulin levels low. And uh, that that improved responses to cancer drugs. That was what and I was going to ask you next. <laughs> yeah. So the mice, all the mice were given the same drug. And uh, in most cases, the drug had very limited effect on the cancer. So it didn't shrink it, typically slowed it down. But then in the context of a ketogenic diet, very low carbohydrate diet, or other approaches that kept insulin levels down, the drugs then became dramatically more effective. Uh, particularly drugs that hit, hit the enzyme I started out talking about, PI3 kinase, PI3K, uh, which is mutated in 40% of uh, ER-positive breast cancer. Uh, it has been a, a drug that hits that enzyme has been approved by a Novartis drug called PCRE. And um, so we used that drug in the study and showed that it worked much better if the mice were on a ketogenic, sorry, a ketogenic diet or a drug that keeps insulin down by preventing glucose reabsorption in the kidney. So as your blood gets filtered in the kidney, if there's a, there's a transporter that brings the glucose back into the bloodstream, if you block that, then the glucose ends up in the urine. So that's another way to keep glucose down and therefore keep insulin down. So we tried both approaches, the diet or the drug, uh, and in both cases we got much better uh, response uh, to the, the PI3 kinase inhibitor. So there are two PI3 kinase inhibitors that inhibit the enzyme that's mutated in breast cancer uh, and uh, that have been approved, one from Novartis and one from Bayer. And both companies, after reading our paper, agreed to run a clinical trial wow. to test whether their drugs would work better if we gave the patients a ketogenic diet or the drug, what's called a sodium glucose co-transporter inhibitor, SGLT2 inhibitor, uh, that otherwise controls glucose by preventing reabsorption in the kidney. So dietary intervention versus other blockade of glucose elevation. And um, in the mice, either one worked. Diet was a little better. Uh, so we're going to try them both in the setting with the drugs that have already been approved. And of course, there's a lot the pharmaceutical companies are highly motivated by this because they would like to see patients stay on their drug longer. They'd like to see the drug more effective. And uh, so we'll see. We haven't yet started enrolling patients in those trials, uh, but we hope to soon. So the other, the other study we did, which is a somewhat different story, but maybe highly relevant for children's uh, cancers, particularly for those who have polyp syndromes, intestinal colon polyps, which is relatively rare, fortunately, but it's you know it's a, a disease from childhood on that has to be managed, and. These children and young adults have to have colonoscopies periodically to check for polyps and remove the polyps. Mm -hmm. And we've shown in another study, an independent study that we published in Science uh, last year, that uh, sugary drinks will drive the growth of those polyps. Mm -hmm. They'll grow two to three times faster, at least in a mouse model, where we mimic the same sort of mutations you see in 
the children. That's so significant. Into the mouse, and then we give them sugary drinks, and those polyps grow two to three times faster. So again, that's a mouse study. It doesn't mimic what we see in the human, uh, but so we have to prove it in a clinical trial before people will, before physicians will embrace that idea. They want to see it proven in a clinical trial control. And they, you know, that's mm-hmm. the way they've been trained. They should. Mm-hmm. We want the facts. We want to see this tested with controls. And so that's uh, that's another trial we're hoping to get started soon. And when I ask those um, questions to physicians, because in, in my role at the children's hospital where I work, um, I'm a teacher, so certainly not clinically trained at all, but I sit in on those disease team meetings, so I sometimes will raise my hand and ask eighth grade biology questions, but I say, why you know, why don't we talk about diet or when a family asks you about diet? Um, because certainly I know handfuls of families that ask even specifically about ketogenic diets. Um, will this change outcome? You know, they, they have the diagnosis, we have cancer, here we are. But if we implement this now, will it change outcome? Um, will they, um, you know, do better on treatment? And physicians say, you know, certainly any diet that makes you feel better, do it. But like you said, I don't have the data to support that, yes, a ketogenic diet, you know, will help. Um, And then I've also, sometimes I wonder or if physicians worry that um, people will try to, I guess, cling on to that, cling on to the idea of just using a diet when it should be or needs to be a marriage of that and chemotherapy, radiation, so forth. No, I, I completely uh, agree with that, that in fact, in our mouse studies, the ketogenic diet by itself had very little effect on the growth of the tumors. Um, in some cases, we could see some effects, but um, yes, we the dramatic effect was when we did the diet in combination with, with the therapy. So one, one concept that we would like to push is that, um, well, first of all, one should never drink a sugary drink. There's just no, you don't need sugary drinks. Yeah. Human beings lived for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years without ever having a sugary drink. (laughs) We're not adapted to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eat an apple, don't drink apple juice. Throw away the blender. Let your body slowly metabolize the food the way it was designed to do it. And it will, your body will react appropriately and metabolize appropriately. And you won't get these insulin overshoots. Yeah. So that, that, you know, 50% of people in America, they're borderline insulin resistant. I mean, that, that's a huge and obese. And that would, in my opinion, most of that would go away if we went back to reducing sugary drinks. Uh, so I'm not advocating people go on ketogenic diets. As I say, I myself yeah. am not on a ketogenic diet. I weigh the same as I did when I was in high school. <laughs> and it's... Uh, it's you don't have to be on a severe diet to, to keep yourself under control. The easiest thing is just eliminate the sugary drinks. Um, and I don't think anyone would advocate that you have to have a sugary drink uh, to, you know, to be healthy. Now, there, you know, physicians do recommend taking an insure, a drink that for people mm-hmm. who are toxic, uh, that need to gain weight. And this is complicated in 
my opinion, because uh, certainly if, if you're having trouble, if people, if cancer patients are having trouble gaining weight, uh, some amount of sugar certainly helps that. And the question is, how do you deliver it? Do you deliver it? I would say avoid delivering it as a sugary drink as it is an insure, but eat the apple. It has some sugar in it. Yeah. So insure and, is pretty sugar packed. Yeah. 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 And I know that they, I feel like oncologists, this is a pretty general statement, but they do worry about weight gain or weight loss because I do think there's significant data there to show um, that that can impact treatment and outcomes. But like you're saying, what are the ways we're gaining weight? Yeah, The mechanism I'm talking about would argue that the critical time not to drink or consume much sugar is while the therapy is being administered, whether it's a pill or it's a yeah. chemotherapy. Uh, I, I worry about uh, you know having high sugary drinks at the time you're getting your therapy because that elevation in insulin, we can show ex vivo, having a high level of insulin while you're adding a cancer drug will keep the tumor alive. So. <laughs> Yeah. It doesn't make sense to raise your insulin levels while you're trying to kill yeah. the tumor with a drug. And um, so that that would be my recommendation. And if they want to try to keep their weight up, you know, eat the food that they need at a time different from when they're getting their therapy. Mm-hmm. So don't drink sugary drinks while you're getting your therapy. Uh, wait until after you've had the therapy and, and then eat something it's uh, nutritional, maybe some sugar in it, but hopefully not a drink. Yeah. um, How much of your work and research have you done um, kind of unrelated to oncology, but the impact of sugar on our body? Um, I recently, I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's a PhD, Dr. Rhonda Patrick. I've referenced, Uh, no, I don't know. I've re- referenced her a, a few times, and I, um, the PhD student that I was talking to about that was on a couple episodes ago talking about sugar, um, I had talked to her about a study that I saw Dr. R- Rhonda Patrick um, publish and talk about in her podcast, um, where she had studied mice um, that w- had long-term and high exposure to, sh- to sugar and um, how it impacted their memory. Um, they were like no longer able to really navigate through through their mazes, and then also correlated it to um, it was a, a similar study, but how the brain is able to, I guess, sort of recover from a traumatic brain injury, um, and how excessive sugar impacts that. So I'm just curious, your work, um, kind of unrelated to oncology, but just how sugar impacts our hormones, our memory, our our brain in general. Yeah. Well, the biggest problem is, is when people become insulin resistant, they tend, you know, you end up losing blood circulation to sure. peripheral issues. You see amputations, kidney dysfunction. I, I think much of that is due, it, it has been argued that that's because the high sugar, the high glucose in the blood is impairing blood flow, but you, the blood does become more viscous. Uh, but there's also evidence that, of course, the high insulin can drive growth of tissues that can include flow as well. So it, I think it's a little more complicated than just simple viscosity. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, anytime you have impaired blood flow to any part of the body, including the brain, you're going to get problems. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm, I'm not an endocrinologist, so but I consult with my brother on these <laughs> issues. Well, uh, so it, it's um, a, a lot. Certainly, just reducing sugar consumption will reverse so many of those illnesses. And, but people are addicted to sugar. It's, uh, when, when I tell people that I go all day long without eating anything sweet, uh, it's like, how can you do that? I mean, for an entire day, you can go an entire day without anything sweet. <laughs> it's yeah. like, of course. It's, yeah, it, to me, it's shocking. It's, it's clearly an addiction if you realize you couldn't go an entire day without eating sugar. And they said, well, then what do you eat? Do you have stevia? No, no, I don't eat anything sweet at all. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have to be sweet. <laughs> you can have a perfectly wonderful meal without anything sweet. It's pretty scary to think of, you know, I have two young children uh, under four years old. And I'm as you're talking, I'm thinking about how every time I go for a well child, my pediatrician asks, do they drink juice? She always asks me that question. I always say no, and she's always thrilled to hear that answer. But it is kind of scary to think of how much um, is targeted towards sugary drinks and foods are targeted towards children. Yeah. And what that has to be doing to a developmental, you know, a developing mind, especially in the first, you know, five years of life. Um, we, I'm pretty strict about sugar intake for my children, but, you know, I remember both uh, you know, on their first birthdays had their, had the cake and it was kind of their first time having sugar. And I remember, you know, each time, you know, my husband and I thinking, geez, it's like their brain just knows it's good. Like it's a drug. I mean, the, well, how their eyes kind of just bulk out of their head, like, oh my gosh, where has this been my whole life? It's got to be like unlocking some, re, you know, reward system in their brain that knows this is like a drug. <laughs> I want this. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. So, so the, the reason that addiction exists, yeah, I, I'm completely convinced that this is why it exists. The reason it exists is that 100,000 years ago, the only time anything sweet was available was at the end of the growing season. So when apples and berries and you know various fruits, and we're talking 100,000 years ago, the uh, this was before cultivation of fruits, so. Pretty much, it was what you found wild in the woods, mm-hmm. and uh, and if you didn't eat every sugary thing available, you would not be able to put on enough weight in order to survive. So the hibernating bear is a good example of pretty much what humans did a hundred thousand years ago. Mm. We're not quite, we didn't quite hibernate, but we came something close to it, and. The hibernating bear, someone told me once, eats 40,000 blueberries in the, in the fields of Maine uh, in, in uh, September, you know, August, September, October. Wow. Even climbs up trees and raids the bees of all the honey, uh, it's taking on all those stings. They are so addicted to the sugar. But the only time they really get it is at the end of the growing season. Once they get the taste for the sweet, they then look for it everywhere. And that allows them to put on over 100, 150, maybe more pounds. 
and they become severely insulin resistant to get into a coma, literally. And that's what hibernation is. Oh my gosh. They they then stay in that hibernating, sleeping state until their body eventually burns all that fat away and uh, they wake up hungry in, you know, late February, March when there's food available again. Yeah. And that's how they survive. So we probably pretty much did the same thing 100,000 years ago. Into the growing season, we ate every berry we could find, anything sweet, honey, Mm -hmm. put on enough weight so that by January, February, when there was nothing to eat, we had still our fat reserves to get through. And anyone who didn't put on 50 pounds every fall was probably going to be dead by March. And that's why we're addicted. That extreme addiction is what allowed us to survive. That's so bears are really in an insulin coma. (laughs) They do it every year. Yeah. And we, we probably were designed to do the same thing. Yeah. Jeez. So Dr. Cantley, the last question I have for you is, do you think there is a future where oncologists are intentional about diet and meal planning for patients that are on treatment? Perhaps even specifically, of course, to a sugar-free diet or monitoring what their sugar intake looks like. Do you think that's in the future? Uh, Yes, absolutely. I think, as I said, we need to do clinical trials to prove it. So in the case of specific uh, cancer therapies, I think that, uh, as I say, we're we're initiating some trials with Novartis and Bayer, uh, and um, whether you know those trials are with PI3 kinase inhibitor, and there's a very strong logic for why that you want to keep sugar down with that drug. Uh, but I would argue that most chemotherapy drugs would probably be more effective on a low sugar diet, uh, and so uh, that's you know hopefully will stimulate additional trials to prove because you have to prove it before you can really uh, before physicians will start recommending it mm-hmm. and I should say though I have a conflict here in that I'm founder of a company that is uh, preparing meals for patients for treating patients with cancer that will be working with Novartis and Bayer wow uh, to, to you know, if you if you actually give the patients the meals rather than just telling them what to eat, you've Absolutely. got a better chance that they will actually you know, maintain what you're recommending because it's provided to them. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, of course, it's somewhat expensive to do, and um, it remains to be seen whether people will stay on the diets if they have to stay on the drug beyond the trial. But that's, that's the goal is to first prove in a more controlled setting uh, that the patients are adhering to the diet and that that is having an effect on the therapy. If people want to find out more information on, like you were, you were saying, your, your company that's working towards preparing those meals, where would they find that? Well, the company's name is Faith, F-A-E-T-H. It's a Welsh name for health. And... Uh, so that you could just Google that phase therapeutics. Or okay. Hopefully. Well, thank you so much for your time. I've certainly learned a lot. Um, 
really appreciate you being on and hope our listeners enjoy. So thank you very much, Dr. Cantley. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Lifting the Fog. As always, please email us at liftingthefog1, that's the number one, at gmail.com. We want to hear from you with your questions, concerns, thoughts, and ideas for future conversations and topics to dive into. And subscribe, whether it's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, but subscribe and rate us. We would also love for you to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at liftingthefog1, and please hashtag us at hashtag liftingthefog. And as always, Lifting the Fog is an independent podcast. All information, thoughts, and opinions shared are for informational purposes only. No material on this podcast is intended to be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please always seek the advice of your qualified health provider with any questions that you may have. Thanks for tuning in.